0: Welcome to the Cineca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SubChina is the best way to keep on top of all the news out of China, especially if you subscribe to our email newsletter, SupChina Access, or check out subchina.com for all the original reported stories, op-eds, great regular columns, and our growing range of videos and podcasts. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from my home in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I've not made any secret of the fact that it's been pretty rough for me of late, what with U.S.-China tensions continuing to rise even after the election of Joe Biden and, you know, with anti-Asian hate inseparable, really, from the Sinophobia that's gripped so much of the country. I imagine that many of the listeners to this show uh, share my despondency. Well, folks, I've got something that might just make you feel better, at least for 90 minutes, with a warm afterglow that will keep your mood elevated for that long again at least, so as long as you stay off Twitter and don't look at the news. So on April 16th, PBS's great performances will air the documentary Beethoven in Beijing, which tells the story of the Philadelphia Orchestra's long and very close relationship with China from the first concerts that the orchestra under the legendary conductor Eugene Ormandy and played there in 1973 up to nearly the present to 2019. Uh, The film looks at the orchestra's role in popularizing classical music in China, as well as China's role in revitalizing not only the Philadelphia orchestra, but perhaps it's not too much of a stretch to say in revitalizing classical music in the United States. I cannot recommend this documentary more highly And today on Seneca, I have three wonderful guests, all deeply involved with the documentary, to talk with me about this fantastic film. First, I'd like to introduce Jennifer Lin, a veteran journalist who was with the Philadelphia Inquirer for many years and reported from China and from other countries and territories in Asia. In 2017, she published the book Shanghai Faithful betrayal and forgiveness in a Chinese Christian family about her own family in Shanghai and their experience during the country's tumultuous modern history. Jennifer was one of the directors of Beethoven in Beijing, and we are delighted that she could take time to join us. Congrats, Jennifer, on this truly touching and very heartwarming film, uh, and welcome, Jennifer, to Seneca.
2: Well, thank you, Kaiser, for having us on your show. It's, it's a real honor
0: Oh, well, honor is all mine. Sheila Melvin is someone I've had the pleasure of knowing for, oh, gosh, a couple of decades or more. Uh, and she spent many years at the U.S.-China Business Council, which is a fantastic organization. She went on to become one of the most prolific and highly regarded writers on culture in China, which is something that people just do not write about enough. Uh, publishing in all the major newspapers and magazines, along with her husband, who I will introduce shortly, she co-authored the excellent Rhapsody in Red. How Western Classical Music Became Chinese, as well as a book entitled Beethoven in China. Uh, Both Sheila and her husband are interviewed in the documentary, and she was a script advisor to it. Sheila, welcome to Seneca. Great to see you.
1: Thank you, Kaiser. Great to be here.
0: And uh, finally, Cai Jingdong is one of the great bridge builders in classical music between China and the United States. Born in Beijing, he had a truly storied childhood that includes, as I trust he's going to share with us, a memorable encounter with Madame Jiang Qing herself. He came to the U.S. in the 1980s, and in 1989, he was actually selected to study with famed conductor Leonard Bernstein at the Tanglewood Music Center. He has been a conductor at the Cincinnati Symphony. spent time in my hometown of Tucson, Arizona, at the University of Arizona, where my mother bestowed the dubious honor of godson on him. And then in 2004, he joined Stanford University as director of orchestral studies. He conducted the Stanford Symphony Orchestra for 11 years and is now director of the U.S.-China Music Institute, professor of music and arts at Bard College, and associate conductor of the orchestra now. He's also a producer of the film.
3: Jindong, welcome back to Seneca. Thank you, Kaiser. Thank you so much. So, have, so happy to see you.
0: Yeah, it's wonderful yeah. to see you. Uh, thank you, first of all, to all three of you for this much-needed ray of hope <laughs> and sunshine in this season of darkness, gloom, <laughs> and despair. Uh, have you guys, I don't know if you've all been feeling it, too. Uh, and I don't know if your work on this film has been as much of a salve as it's been for me. And if so, next time, get me involved.
3: <laughs> yeah. We have been, I think, that's five or six years, right, Gender? Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: Anyway. Jennifer, let me start with uh, asking you about the genesis of this project and the relationship between this film and uh, uh, the book, you know, that Sheila and Jin Dong wrote for Penguin that came out in 2015. I mean, your connection to Philadelphia, having written for The Enquirer for so long is obvious enough. But how did you and your your co-director, Sharon Malali decide on this particular approach and this particular angle to tell this story?
2: Sure. Well, I, I had kind of a personal window into this story. Um, My father's from Shanghai, and he literally left Shanghai on one of the last boats out. Um, And he took us back to Shanghai in 1979, and we were able to meet all of our relatives for the first time. One of the cousins I met uh, was my cousin Julia, and she was a few years older than me. And Julia, in 1962, entered the Shanghai Conservatory. Hmm. She wanted to be a concert pianist. And of course, in 1966, you know, her world turned upside down. And it was uh, really a a horrible time for the family. And the Lynn family, their home was raided. Her piano was carted off. They destroyed all of her deutsche gramophone albums, burned her sheet music. And there was one night where she was caught playing Mozart at an uncle's house. And uh, the next day, the Red Guards at the conservatory Basically, beat her and tried to break her hands with a ping pong paddle. Ugh. In 1973, which is the year the Philadelphia Orchestra went to, to China, they performed in Beijing and Shanghai. And my cousin, because she was at the time working as a pianist for the Shanghai Lyric Opera Company, she actually got a ticket. And wow. so she heard Ormandy and the uh, fabulous Philadelphians, as they're known locally, she heard them. And she, I remember her telling me that it was like being in the desert and getting a long drink of water. Uh, she really, really remembered that concert and cherished that moment. So I kind of held on to that, that image and that, that notion. And then it was in 2008, Kaiser, that the newspaper sent me to China uh, to cover an anniversary concert marking the 35th anniversary of the tour. Oh, wow. And they held it in the same dingy uh, Hall of Nationalities, and they performed the exact same program. And they sent me because I knew my way around China, not because I knew classical music. And so when I was covering the concert and interviewing people as they were coming and going, I was really struck by the degree of nostalgia that the Chinese people had towards this orchestra. And so I, I just always felt like, you know, I should have known this, but but I didn't. And so, you know, it occurred to me that this was kind of a chapter in US history that was kind of fading. And um, I, I also thought that it would make a great movie, that this was really a story that should be seen and heard and not just read about, the legacy of the Philadelphia Orchestra and uh, kind of what has happened since 1973. So that was kind of the 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 catalyst. You know, when I left the newspaper, five years ago, I, I wanted to try my hand at other types of storytelling. And I thought this would be a great subject for a documentary. So I, I pitched the orchestra and uh, it took them a little while, but they finally agreed. And I partnered with a guy named Sam Katz. Mm-hmm. He's in Philadelphia and he's the produ- one of the producers of the film and the executive producer. And so uh, the orchestra then gave us the green light. So the first time we actually traveled with them to
0: China was 2016. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, but you used quite a bit of archival footage. You used a lot of, I mean, it's, it's, it's yes. pretty amazing. So the film itself jumps around quite a bit in time. I mean, it's bookended uh, between the first concerts that are played by the Philadelphia Orchestra in 73 and uh, a more recent, I guess it was 2019 performance uh, of the orchestra under its conductor, uh, Yannick Nezeis again. Uh, but maybe we could try and take this on more chronologically. So Maybe we could set the scene first and and give a kind of a short history of classical music in China prior to seventy three. Sheila, maybe I can start by asking you about the pre forty nine high water mark for European classical music in China. I mean, had it taken root at all uh, during the Republican period, just in the relatively cosmopolitan enclaves like Shanghai, or how how well known was was. Western classical music at the
1: time. Yes, well, uh, Western classical music was first introduced to China starting in the 1600s and even earlier by missionaries, Mm, Catholic and Christian missionaries who, who used music as a form of worship. And also brought instruments to the Chinese emperors because they they were seen as impressive gifts from Europe. They were technologically advanced. China didn't have keyboard instruments and the West did. So it started going in that route, and it very, very slowly took root. But I'd say it really took off more when the Shanghai Symphony was founded, which was back in 1879, which is even earlier than the Boston Symphony. It's earlier than a lot of the great American orchestras. And then again, it was performed mostly for the foreign community, but by the 1900s, early 1900s, 1920s, uh, Chinese audiences were allowed to go in. And the first Chinese musician joined the Shanghai Symphony in 1927. So by then, it did have fairly firm roots. And another angle was through military bands. So they would also sometimes play <laughs> orchestral music, but a lot of the Chinese warlords had military bands. So there was band music and there was orchestral music in the major cities.
0: So they had heard a little bit of Suzuki. Probably, one yeah. The orchestra actually played <laughs> <Yeah>. Stars and <laughs> Stripes. Yeah. Uh, that's interesting. <laughs> I'm curious, though. You know what was it that they had? I mean, I just remember in, in the beginning of the, of the the film, talking about how uh, Chopin and Liszt were on the the naughty list, uh, as it were. They and and uh, just now Jennifer told us about her cousin having her hands almost broken with ping pong paddles over playing Mozart. It seems like some composers were verboten and others were sort of still allowed. How did they draw the line? Was it just sort of the arbitrary tastes of people like Jiang Qing?
1: Well, basically, I mean, when uh, when 1949 came along, when the when, when the communists won the re- you know the revolution triumphed and the People's Republic was founded, there was a big debate over Western classical music, whether or not it was bourgeois and it should be thrown out, or whether it could serve the needs of the of the you know the workers, soldiers, and people. And it was decided that it could serve the needs, but it kind of had to be Sinified and adapted. And there were certain so that so Chinese composers started composing their own music, and certain Western composers were still permitted. And one of them was Beethoven because Beethoven was seen as a revolution even in his own lifetime and ah, also because right. he was very popular in the Soviet Union and the Soviet Union was instrumental in setting up all these orchestras opera houses conservatories and they liked Beethoven so that sort of music was permitted up until the beginning of the cultural revolution but the more sort of impressionistic bourgeois music like Debussy was not permitted it was never performed oh, right as much
0: I see. But what about some of the more avant-garde stuff that was coming out of the, what would become the Soviet Union or, you know, in the case of some of these composers was already the Soviet Union. I mean, many of my favorite Eastern European composers, I, I hope that they were still being played in China. I mean, you know, your, your Prokofiev and, and your Stravinsky. Was that considered too weird for, for China?
3: (laughs) Well, I think you can, uh, one way, like uh, Sheila said, another way you, you measure it, it's by politics. Any composers relate with nationalism and mostly will be allowed to, music can be allowed to play in China.
0: So like Dvorak would be okay?
3: Dvorak will be okay. And Chopin, you know, because he always thinks he is, his heart in Poland and this, uh, anyone, you know, you can uh, find some really that's kind of nationalistic stories, then their music actually will get to be, be played. Oh. And, uh, I think for the Soviet Union's composer, I don't think China is very keen yet because they, you know, when I was in music school in, in, in China, uh, after cultural Revolution, basically we only learn, uh, music up from Bach or after Bach and before mm-hmm. WC. So that's uh. period, you know, so that's, and so the, anyone beyond that, we, we just don't have it. Uh, we never really have the information to, to, to learn them.
0: Jingduo, while we're on you, Um, tell us a little bit about your own experiences as a young aspiring composer during the waning years of the Cultural Revolution, and and, and about this encounter that you had with Jiang Qing uh, that I alluded to when I introduced you. Uh, (laughs) uh, Tell us about that. Those are some amazing stories.
3: (laughs) Well, you know, I, uh, I loved music when I was little. Mm-hmm. I always uh, try to look at our window, see other people playing Chinese instruments. So I, I, I grab Arhu to play for a little. And then, you know, I find the, the violin, the reason because, uh, uh during the Cultural Revolution, the few first few years, um, there's no school. And, right. and my father thinks, Oh, you know, you better not to get on the street. What do you like to do? I said, I like, what about play some music? He find a, a used violin from a, a, a dance shop. You know, it's, so I started to play this uh, this violin, and I studied for myself, and then find a teacher to study. So that's how I start music, start with Western instrument. So that's what I want to say is, even during the Cultural Revolution, Mozart was forbidden, right? Mm. Beethoven's forbidden, but the instrument you can play. And and you mentioned Jiang Qing, your mouse wife. She actually loved Western music. She liked Copeland's uh, Red Pony, and she <laughs> loved Rahmaninov, <laughs> if you talk about Soviet Union's com- composers. So, and then, you know, so I, so I studied the violin, but you're only allowed to play the etudes and the revolution, join the revolution, uh, propaganda troupe, at what you call 宣传队. So, yeah. so you, you, you play the model operas, and, uh, you play revolutionary dance, and so whatever. So that's in 19—I would say it's in 1975, just before the Kodron finished. And there's a one uh, situation. I was leading an orchestra, and so I started to conduct, learned to conduct. So, And that year, we were invited to the great hall of people to play for— uh, it, it, it's a what do you call it, it's a March 8th, you know, International Women's Day. Right. So, play for the wives of the ambassadors. So, we went there actually. Uh, Madame Mao Jiang Qing, was there because she's the leading figure. So, on that thing, so we uh, played the revolutionary dance and, uh, and the music. So, after that, we had good food. That's what <laughs> I remember. <laughs>
0: the food, of course. You know, there are these fantastic. Uh, animation sequences, Jennifer, that you use in the film every time you've got people telling stories from their past, like when Jin Dong tells a story about listening to Beethoven for the first time. I, I love those. I mean, that was such an inspired decision to, to, to use that animation. So, you know, when Tan Dun talks about his train ride from Hunan, you know, hiding in the bathroom. I don't want to spoil it. <laughs> and and yeah, uh, and, and Jindal, when you talk about uh, that that story of you listening to Beethoven for the first time, those were delightful, Jennifer. Well, was that whose idea was that?
2: So I didn't want animation. Oh, really? <laughs> but <I'm, laughs> my my co-director Sharon uh, Malali, she was advocating for it, and so it's it's funny how we found our animator. Uh, his name is Jacob Rivkin but we literally uh, sharon finally brought me around uh that animation would be good and we literally googled uh chinese brush style animation <laughs> and we came upon jacob who happens to be in philadelphia wow. uh, he teaches animation both at penn and rutgers and i just adore the animation in the film because he was able to convey Um, concepts and ideas and memories in a way that we could never do just with film. Oh, and the other thing I forgot to mention about Jacob and talk about, you know, fate. Um, He was a Fulbright in Nanjing. Oh, wow. Like when I told him, okay, we have to create like a lavatory inside a Chinese train for this one scene involving Tandun, I didn't really have to explain it. You know, he knew exactly he had what He'd been he, on
0: trains. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. And uh the wonderful Jindong sequence which is one of my favorite parts of the whole film. When I told him it was in a Sichuan, Yuan, he knew what it looked like. He he knew how to to envision these scenes in China. So, yeah, I mean, I think the without the animation we would not have been able to convey certain anecdotes as well as uh, you know, certain concepts.
0: You know, I think that if you hadn't told me that it was a guy named Jacob, uh, I I would have assumed it was a Chinese animator. I mean, yeah. I I think he really yeah. he really got it. It felt so uh, just just authentic. It was it was fantastic. Uh, you have this remarkable tape of Nixon and Kissinger actually breaking the news by phone to Eugene Ormandy yeah. that the Philadelphia Orchestra had been invited to China. That was amazing. Uh, there's all sorts of great archival stuff in there, but there was also a backstory here, right? Ormandy, as I understand it, had been lobbying to get the Philadelphia Orchestra to China from the moment that a thaw was detectable. I mean, he was he was pushing this right
2: fiercely. <laughs> he was pushing it fiercely. Um, uh, I actually have a book coming out on on Beethoven in Beijing, focusing just on the 1973 tour. And what I found out, Kaiser, is he was actually lobbying in in 1971 when yeah. he was reading the paper. Uh, about the ping pong team going to, to China. And he was sitting with the manager of the orchestra, Boris Sokolov, and he said, Boris, how do we get an invitation to China? And they are like, I don't know. So they called the White House and the White House said, well, you have to approach the nearest embassy. So uh, the orchestra actually rode away to the Canadian embassy and they, they never replied. But then uh, Ormandy kind of worked all of his political contacts. So like Senator Hugh Scott and... You know, all of these Republican bigwigs were really lobbying for him. And then Nixon really liked him. I mean, he received the uh, Presidential Medal uh, from Nixon, and Nixon tells the story about listening to the Philadelphia Orchestra albums as as a kid growing ah. up. So, there was this affinity already between Ormandy and Nixon.
0: I had no idea. That's <laughs> Who would have ever thought that Nixon was a classical <laughs> music aficionado? You know, but uh Sheila, when Zhang Qing and the Gang of Four first heard that, that they were coming and they were planning on playing the Fifth Symphony, uh, they were not happy about that because, you know, that's all about fate and good Marxists, you know, they don't believe in predestined outcomes, but in mankind forging its own destiny. Uh, they hinted strongly, though, that they wanted the Sixth instead, the Pastoral. Uh, I guess Ormody wasn't pleased with that, though. Can you, can you explain why? What was What did he have against the Sixth, the Pastoral Symphony?
1: I think he just didn't think it showed off the best qualities of the Philadelphia Orchestra because hmm. there's hmm. you know, they could sound so big and so bold. Right. And so so, I think he just didn't particularly like it. It wasn't the best way to showcase his his orchestra. But there was a backstory to that because when Kissinger made one of his uh, visits to China in nineteen seventy three Joe and Lai had said, hey, he's German, we should play Beethoven for him. Ah. So he got the central Philharmonic to give him basically a private concert, but there was a big behind the scenes debate about which, uh, What you know, he said to the conductor, Li what do you play best, what Beethoven? And he said, Beethoven's fifth. But then the gang of four got involved and they said what you just said, oh no, the fifth is about fatalism. And so then Li the conductor said, well, what about the third? And the gang of four said, no, that's about Napoleon because <laughs> Beethoven had originally dedicated it to Napoleon and then crossed it out. And then they said, uh, okay, well, what can we play? And the Gang of Four said, the six, it's about peasants, because it's a pastoral. <laughs> so that's what that sort of became the go-to Beethoven after that debate.
0: So Ormandy, actually, Jennifer, uh, his, his reaction to watching or to listening as the crowd, this is in the film, Uh, applauded so tepidly. That was really funny, and it was something I've also experienced uh, when first playing concerts in China, although in my case, the reaction probably was genuinely tepid. Uh, This (laughs) this would have been kind of frightening. Uh, It was this, I mean, Jin Dong, you were there. Is that how audiences used to respond? I mean, that was really, you know, the most enthusiasm they could summon up, just sort of
3: clapping. Yes, you know, uh, I still remember in 19... uh, 79 that's not that's quite a few, some years after that you know uh, when you go to a concert there you can hear the pin drop and uh-huh. it's a very very quiet and after concert if you can hear some clapping then you're lucky and usually we were trained just not to doing that so it it's very natural it uh, it's never really react to anything excited, and if you react anything excited, you can be in trouble. So that's in our culture.
0: Well, I've definitely seen. I've been to symphonies in China where people will start clapping between movements, and then everyone will turn around and glare at. That's them. right. Yeah. Right,
3: right, right. Exactly. Yeah. And but the thing is, you know, it 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 doesn't mean you are not appreciated. It's yeah. really it's even more inside of you. You know, uh, like uh, uh, I mentioned in 1979, I went to the Berlin Berlin-fei-harmon- Philharmonic with a Korean conducting. It did play in the, you know, like 8,000 uh, Coliseum uh, people Coliseum. So that's it. Uh, what I said, I, even you, the music start, it's like a, you can hear a pin drop. It's so uh, so quiet. And after concert, you don't hear this kind of. A, storming uh, plowing it just here uh, uh, but everyone enjoyed everyone just looked at each other everyone just so amazed by what kind of song they heard and that that kind of sound they never heard before
0: so there's this amazing scene though where, where Eugene Ormandy visits the rehearsal studio of I, I guess it's the Central Conservatory uh the Chinese musicians are all just you know absolutely nervous uh, then I can't remember which, who it was, but one of the American musicians is, is talking about this and says that within minutes, once Normandy actually starts conducting, they start sounding like the Philadelphia Orchestra. Uh, and yeah. that, that seems to suggest to me that the raw talent was really there. Uh, you know, talk about the state of, of classical musicianship in China at the time, Jindong. Uh, how good were they? I mean, how, what, what was missing? Uh, you know, was that, all that raw potential was already there. Is that is that fair?
3: Well, during the Cultural Revolution, there's about ten years. So you can you're not allowed to play classical music, but that doesn't mean people are not practicing. Right. People practicing in secret, you know, and that's why after the Cultural Revolution, uh, they're like a. Thousands of thousands of people just came to, to came out to say to play to, to uh, try to enter the Central Conservatory. So that's what I mean. As in the Cultural Revolution, you people are practicing, and people basically still uh, have a, a, a attached to the classical music.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that relates to the persistent knock that we hear against. East Asian musicians, not just Chinese, but all East, East Asian musicians, we used to, we've we heard this for decades or at least used to, anyway, they're technically proficient, sure, but somehow they lack this capacity for emotional expression. I always found this to be, you know, essentialist nonsense. I mean, it's a piece with the whole, you know, East Asians are robotic emotionless automatons. Uh some of the musicians that you feature in the film though obviously are, are they have they suffered no no not no, maybe a surfeit of emotionalism if anything. Uh Longlong for example, but Sheila, do you see this as changing now? I mean, what's what do people say now about, you know, uh musicians from East Asia? Do you still hear this? Are we moving beyond this idea of Asians as soulless machines?
1: No, I think the bias still exists. I mean, they're oh, technically no. proficient, but they're not musical, whatever that means. You know, this this idea that because the European music people are performing didn't come from China and, and therefore they somehow don't have the same connection to it, I think is absolutely ridiculous. I mean, yeah. Beethoven's yeah. roots are so deep in China. You have, this is a composer people literally died for. Their, Beethoven is as much a composer of China as he is of Germany. And I, I think, you know, you don't see that many conductors from East Asia, it's changing a little bit. But you know, if you look at the youth orchestra sim, uh, system in the United States, you, you'll see so many Chinese conductors, so many Chinese kids in the youth orchestras. And then slowly yeah. as you get higher, 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 there's not nearly as many, the percentages drop significantly. So I think unfortunately that, that bias is still here.
0: Uh, really,
3: that is a pity. Well, I think it also you can say the view, uh, it's a, maybe uh, you can say Chinese people don't have the Western concept View of classical
0: music. Uh, unpack that a bit for me.
3: Somehow the Western classical music, uh, throughout the history, is really uh, kind of a uh, the criticism is very important in Western classical music development. The criticism about the composers, about pieces, and then composer will write even better piece and this, so. But in China, they really never had that culture. Hmm. And but music is a living art. You know, if you have a piece of music, it's not music. Music only when it becomes sound, it becomes music. So which means the music really rely on performers to finalize it. And that's why when you play Beethoven 250 years, uh, you still hear a brand new idea of a new interpretation. So I think an Asian people or a Chinese people can uh, achieve that by uh, idea, the new ideas to play. Uh, classical music.
0: You know, one of the things I really loved about the film is that how it, it features quite a number of, of Chinese musicians and composers and, and, you know, exposes us to, to quite a few of them. Uh, one of the more famous, of course, is, is Long Long. Jennifer Gary Grafman, uh, gives us a little recitation about how his own lineage goes, you know, from this, is this student teacher, uh, connection all the way back to Beethoven himself through his own teacher, Isabel Vengerova, back to Czerny, who studied, you know, directly under Beethoven. Uh, Grafman taught Long Long. That was super cool. Uh, I came away with this very, very impressed with Long Long for a lot of reasons. Uh, what, what does he like to work with as a subject of a film?
2: Uh, I interviewed him in 2016 mm-hmm. uh, when he was performing in Philadelphia with the Philadelphia Orchestra and also in, he was touring with them in China that time. But in between the rehearsals, he also uh, uh, did one of these student events where he brings together like 101 pianists and they all play together on the stage at Temple University. So what's really impressive about Long Long is his work uh, with his foundation. So there are six schools, public schools in Philadelphia, where he's made grants to them in order for the schools to have music programs, piano programs. And he provides the electric keyboards and the curriculum. So, I mean, he's, he's uh, you know, in Philadelphia, he's he's very much, uh, he's an endearing character.
0: Yeah. You know, that's a theme that threads through the whole thing, is the importance of, of musical education right. uh, from grade school on. I mean, I know personally, I benefited from that enormously. I I actually am still in touch with my grade school music teacher, Mrs. Klingon Smith, if you're out there listening, uh, right. uh, many of her other students who are now like, you know, like in their 40s and 50s, all they remember, you know, her method of teaching sight singing and, uh, you know, of teaching rhythm and all the songs that we learned—the very silly ones that I sang to my kids when they were young. Um, there is this very touching scene where you talk to one of the grant recipients, uh, the uh, principal at Thomas Holm Elementary, pr- Principal Crystal Roy Gill, uh, who who gets that grant from from Long Long, and I, I thought that was just a great thing to include. It was just very, very touching. What's the state of music education in China? I mean, my sense was always that they identify you young and then you you go off to a specific, you know, you start on a music track and that your g- general, just your ordinary high school student, uh, they're not necessarily exposed to it very much. Or they have the sort of de rigueur piano or violin lessons when they're young, but they're they not many of them sort of hold it close often to college or whatever?
3: Well, music education, I think, uh, especially when you talk about classical music in China, right? Uh, For Chinese parents, they see this very important. And I, anywhere, you you know, even in this country, you can see the major city youth orchestra is probably 80 percent of the kids are Asians and uh, maybe 90 percent of those Asians are Chinese. Wow. So the parents really uh, think that music education and uh, to learn Western instrument can help the kids set up discipline and also can help them with a, a broad, you know, a, thinking of the creativity and so on so that's it's very important i think also from the government point of view of those days and um, you know and um, uh, they are also uh, really strongly to to promote the uh, arts education including music hmm. education sheila probably yeah sheila say something more yeah
1: yeah, I think it still plays a very major role. And, you know, f- for there was a period you know, in the 1980s, there was this great piano fever, where people would actually invest in pianos and multiple families would go in together to buy a piano so their, their child could have a chance to learn because they didn't during the Cultural Revolution, or because they couldn't afford it too. And then later you have the long, long phenomenon coming on, and many parents really push their children to be the next superstar, and there was tremendous pressure, you know, on kids to 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 be a great star. But I think now it's becoming a little bit more normalized. There's a, there's an appreciation still a tremendous value on musical education, both Western classical music and Chinese traditional instruments, just that this is a very important part of being a well rounded person and of having a a full and complete education. But I think there's a bit less pressure. And there's more ensemble playing, rather than just forcing kids to be soloists. I mean, there's still more tradition of you know you get a lot of violinists from China, because it can be a solo instrument and same with piano. But there's more bands and high schools, and there's more orchestras. So people are doing more of the traditional ensemble style playing that we do here in this country.
0: Oh that's that's fantastic. Uh another couple of scenes that I that just really touched me. I'm sure this is one that that really got everyone uh, and uh, I I couldn't imagine the film without it. But uh Booker Rowe uh mm-hmm. who, who is a second violinist in in Philadelphia at one point. Uh, so he gifts an entire set of the Mendelssohn string quartets to a couple uh who are also violinists in 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 Beijing. And there's this I mean this is in in 73. And there's this beautiful moment of reconnection uh, many years later uh, yeah. at near the end of the film when you bring them back together at the uh, the, the National P- Performance Center. Uh,
2: yeah, I'm glad you like that scene, Oh, I Kaiser. sure and did. I sure did. The, the story behind it is in 2016, it was our first time on tour with the Philadelphia Orchestra. And Jindong and I uh, arranged a, a luncheon in Beijing. And we wanted... Uh, Chinese musicians who had been in the Central Philharmonic during that uh, rehearsal with Ormandy to get together with uh, Philadelphia musicians who were still on tour and performing with the Philadelphia Orchestra. So we had a luncheon in in Beijing and the Chinese musicians were there first at the restaurant. And we had a lot of photographs from 73 uh, all around the room. And I'll never forget it because the Philadelphians came walking in and as soon as Booker Rowe, uh, he's a violinist, uh, as soon as he walked into this room, this woman ran up to him and said, you're the one, you're the man who gave me sheet music back in 1973. And uh. he's, she's going on and on and on. And our translator was trying to keep up with her. And Booker's like, you know, stunned and just trying to take it all in. But it meant so much to her, this, this gesture of, uh, you know, she explained that. All of her sheet music had been destroyed during the Cultural Revolution, right. and all of it was hand, uh, you know, she had to recreate it all by hand. So to get printed, published uh, material like that, it really meant a lot. So when we went back in 2017, 2017 um, I went to this couple's home. the The husband was also a musician with the orchestra and uh she she pulled out the Mendelssohn music that Booker had given her you know forty years ago, and we went with them to the concert and before the concert, Booker was able to reconnect with them briefly uh so yeah, that was one of uh my favorite moments, and it just kind of grew out of this this luncheon that we we had uh you know our first tour.
0: It was lovely, yeah.
3: yeah. Uh- her husband, after her husband was oboe principal, ah, okay. and she, he, yeah, he brought with him the oboe reed, the principal oboe, the Philadelphia orchestra, uh, gave to him in 1973. He still right. Kept he it. had six of them Which and gave really, away five I'm and he kept one. Right, right, right. That's right. Exactly. It's unbelievable.
0: Yeah. You know? Yeah. Wow. That's so. It's. It's. It was really touching. Uh, I love how many of the orchestra's musicians had this long established history. I mean, David Booth, for example, talks about how this this trip was, I guess it was the 2016 trip, or maybe another one, was his 12th already to China. Yeah. Um, uh, for the group that you filmed, you know, who went with um, Yannick Nzese again, uh, were a lot of them multi-trip veterans of the orchestra?
2: So currently there are only 3 musicians in the orchestra today who were there in, in 73. Mm-hmm. But uh when we started filming there were 6. And for the Chinese musicians you know from the Central Phil they're they're just amazed that you know you can still be playing with That's a major orchestra. Yeah. yeah, I mean David Booth was the youngest musician on tour in 73 and I think he was like 23 or, or something but he still performs with the orchestra.
0: Uh I just I love that you know uh the composer Tan Dun who of course won the oscar for best score for for Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon and uh wrote the soundtracks to Hero and The Banquet and of course many other very very famous compositions he's featured also very extensively in the film uh, and Beethoven Beijing focuses in on one of his compositions which is uh the Secret Writings of Women and, and just for our listeners who've not you know uh, you, you're just not going to want to miss this if you aren't already familiar with it it's this Really, it's a multimedia performance. Uh, it features something which I hadn't seen before, which is a harpist as solo instrumentalist. Uh, it, she plays with the uh, Philadelphia Orchestra, Elizabeth Heinen. Jindong, I've often thought of, of Tan Dun as being sort of two music, uh, what Xu Beihong was to painting, in that he had this kind of mastery over these two traditions, and he brings them together in a way that just doesn't feel forced or inorganic it feels real uh what do you think of Tandolin's work i mean and what does he like as a person cuz again he comes off just very very wonderfully in this emotional and and sentimental and and warm
3: yeah well you know he himself would describe his music he said i want to create organic music mm-hmm. it had to be organic so so that because of that you know his music is very very basically uh, profoundly rooted uh, in uh, chinese yeah. culture so it's where he grew up you know in, in hunan and so he reflected what he brought about people washing their clothes on on, on the bank of the river or you know they use the rock to do things and so on so he implement all those into his music he feels music is a live thing it's a we anything can be music and so uh like he created uh, uh, three concertos, yeah. you know, one is for water, water concerto; one is for paper, it's a paper concerto; another one for rocks. So it's a, a rock, uh, you know, it's all a natural thing. And he just um, uh, just fascinated by what did, you know those things that people never really express uh, on, on music. So he did it really successful. I think that's a, it's a basically his uh, his his idea of creating organic music. Of course, he also very care about Chinese traditional value, traditional culture. Like uh, three years ago, he composed this uh, Buddha Passion. Right. You know, it's a, it's a, yeah, the idea is a, it come from like a Bach, St. Matthew Passion or something. He went to Dunhuang, visited those uh, the places and paintings. He found out there's a profound insight there and he, and he just uh, dig out a of tradition and uh, made this uh, m- new music.
0: There's another composer that you introduce us to, a young guy named, I guess his name is Gong Peng Peng. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. He's a composer at res- in residence at the Shanghai Philharmonic. Uh, there's a piece – I was looking all over the internet to try to find some of his stuff that I could listen to because uh there's a Three Kingdoms-inspired composition that you feature in the film, Jennifer, uh, that includes him explaining, like, this trombone passage as, you know, the the laugh of the villain Taltal <laughs> uh It's Symphony 10 Peking mm-hmm. Fantasy, he calls it. Mm-hmm. Uh, wh- what can you tell me yeah. about this composer? I mean, it sounds amazing, and he seems like just a super cool dude.
3: <laughs> well,
2: Pung Pung was just a boy when he went to Juilliard. Uh, I think he was in fifth grade. Oh, wow. And he was in the pre professional uh, program. And uh, I think his parents' aspiration was that he would be the next Long Long. So he was a piano student. Oh, right. With, with uh, Veda Kaplinsky at Juilliard, who happens to be the wife of Herb Light, who's one of the people in our film. So, uh, you know, Peng Peng studied at Juilliard and by the time he got to like the college level of the conservatory, he decided he wanted to become a composer, right. which did not go over big with his dad. <laughs> uh, it caused a lot of attention, but this is what he wanted to do. So, Peng Peng, I think Peng Pong's only 26, uh, so he, when he graduated from Juilliard, he really he told us he didn't have any strong intention to go back to china but then he was offered this position with the shanghai phil and as he says you know as a composer you know to be able to to have a relationship like that he couldn't turn it up so he is now in shanghai
0: well i need to find some of his music i mean because that was mm-hmm. just really compelling i definitely want to check this out
1: Kaiser. he also has a piece about catcher in the rye i think he would love that. oh really yeah i'm
0: not, not, my favorite novel. But yeah, okay. yeah,
1: but it's a really interesting piece of music, actually. It okay. Does a great no, no, no.
3: job. See that thing's, yeah, that thing is uh, what I want to say is, uh, you know, there's a new generation of Chinese composers. Uh, beyond Tan Dun, Chen Yi, Zhou Long, there's a new generation, like twenty or thirty something. Those people, you know, I think uh, really we need to look at, into those composers. And the, in classical music world, around the world, people are le- looking for what is the next generation, what is the new, right? Uh, we have been playing uh, dead people's music for so okay. long. And um, uh, they're great, like Beethoven or Mahler, they're great. But same time, if you think about it back then, Beethoven's time, Mahler's time, they play contemporary right. music. So we need to have the music of our time. So what is the music of time? So that's where we need to look at, you know, a part of it we need to look at China. If we say, uh, China can save classical music, I don't really, uh, I'm not sure about if you just, uh, uh to say, uh, the classical music, it's a, uh, Haydn, Mozart, Beethoven or, or Berkner. But if you go to China, you will see there are more new compositions new operas being performed. So I will say China can contribute to the 21st century. Contemporary.
0: Revitalize it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so no, you often hear it remarked on how when you attend a classical concert in the US, the audience either has white hair or black hair, right? Uh oh, blue hair, yeah, blue right? hair exactly blue hair <laughs> which which is what I mean by white hair uh I mean your your film uh features this this very impressive national Center for the Performing Arts in Beijing. There are amazing concert halls already being you know built or being built in hundreds of Chinese cities. You also talk about that, you know how every city has to have its opera house, every city has to have its, its that's it's fantastic uh meanwhile, you know the Philadelphia Orchestra. Uh, has to actually file for bankruptcy and and they're in trouble. So so you know I is I wonder how they're doing. First of all, how's the Philadelphia Orchestra doing now?
2: So it's important to note Kaiser, they filed for chapter 11 in 2011. Okay. So it was a a decade ago. Okay. And they actually came out of it um in a year's time. So they before the pandemic, they were doing quite well in terms of hmm. rebuilding their endowment and reaching out to build new audience as all orchestras are so um you know but the the big difference as you pointed out is when you go to the ncpa or any concert hall in china the audience you'll see a lot of families a lot of parents with yeah. little kids and uh that's quite different uh than here in the united states yeah it's not true. just philadelphia but you know everywhere
0: and and one thing that I noticed is, I mean, at the end, you know, when they're playing the Ninth Symphony at, at mm-hmm. the end, uh, it really stuck with me. Just the sheer excitement on the of the kids in the audience—they are literally on the edge of their I seats. Know. They're experiencing that rapturous transport that I right. I am familiar with. You yeah. know that you know my cohort growing up, we we would feel that same intense pleasure at listening to music. Uh-huh. Uh, it was just it's such a great thing to see uh, in among you know this new cohort of chinese people uh it was one of the things that that because that, you know the film ended on just such a powerful wonderful note that i was you know i was walking on a cloud for for hours after the first time i watched it and then i watched it again just the other day uh, just- Kaiser, <laughs>
2: you're the perfect viewer. So. Okay, yeah, I, I confess, <laughs> it's not going to do the Kaiser. same thing for everyone. <laughs> but,
0: you know, for, I needed it like nobody else. Right, <laughs> right. I mean, boy. I but there, are, there are two yeah. scenes
2: in that in that final moment where there's a little girl and she's literally sitting on the edge of her seat, right. and sitting up straight. And then there's a little boy who's conducting yeah. the music, and yes. it, it's it's just you know, there's an energy there.
3: Yeah, the great catches. Yeah. So I mean uh, I, I
0: I can't help but think that you know maybe there's some truth to this idea that China is going to save if not save you know to revitalize to, to reinvigorate uh classical music and uh, and you know not just China obviously but the rest of East Asia I I think that cuz it it's been so frustrating for me as somebody who you know comes from the rock idiom to just see how swallowed up rock ended up being by just this commercial just sort of cynically turned pabulum I mean it that that's that's such a contrast with what I see happening in the world of classical music uh and so it's 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 actually super encouraging to see
1: yeah I would say transform
0: yeah transform that's a good word yeah Transformed is a good I think
1: that's probably the best. They're not going to save it. They don't need to save it. That's not their job. They're going to transform it and become, you know, a genuine contributor and propel the art form forward. I think that's China's role in classical music and in many other areas of society. Like
0: painting, right? Right. Like we've seen with sculpture and painting with a lot of the modern Chinese, you know, artists. It's it's transforming. Exactly.
3: Yeah, Yeah.
1: And one of the really wonderful things is how Chinese artists like Tan Duen and Gong Peng Peng, who we were just speaking about, can draw on two traditions. You know, they can draw completely on the Western tradition and they can draw completely on the Chinese tradition. And to me, that's a tremendous advantage that many Chinese artists have that, you know, Western artists don't because we tend to be drawing on our own tradition. But they've absorbed the Western tradition so thoroughly and kept their own at the same time. And then you get this fantastic merger and, and all these new ideas coming out. And that's a great gift that China has. And we could have it, too, if we were more willing to absorb.
0: That Yeah, it's a natural biculturalism. Uh, Jennifer, Sheila, Jindong, thank you so much for taking the time to chat, for making this wonderful, wonderful film. I hope everyone gets a chance to see it. Uh, so uh, it's the 16th on PBS, great performances. That is its its debut. Uh, if people miss it, will you be able to see it somewhere else?
2: Yes, it'll be streaming on PBS for a month afterwards. So... Uh, they can catch it for the next month at least.
3: Yeah, some station actually uh, show it uh, in the different time, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, just looking for the local PBS right. station.
0: I have a special request. When we get to the recommendations section, I want... All of you, if you can, to introduce us to some of the new composers that are coming out. We talked about these 20 and 30-something composers. Uh, so if you have any in mind and you want to drop their names during this, I, I would be just delighted because I'm always looking for, for for new music to get into So um that would be fantastic. But so let us move on to recommendations. First a really quick reminder that if you like the work that we do with the Seneca podcast and the other shows in the network, shows like our new China stories and stalwarts like the Tyson Seneca Business Brief, then please show your support by subscribing to Sub China Access, our daily newsletter. Also, check out SubChina AM, which is brand new. It offers a quick two-minute read of the big business stories from China, put together by our new China-based business editor, Che Chang, and our U.S. team as well. On to recommendations. Uh, Jennifer, why don't you start us off? What you got for us?
2: Okay. I have a book and a band for you, Kaiser. All right. A book and a band. So the book is uh, about Chief Justice John Marshall,
1: Mm-hmm. and
2: it 's called John Marshall, the final founder and it 's written by robert strauss and i 'm halfway through it it 's a very breezy biography oh, okay. and uh Robert Strauss makes the argument that Marshall should be up on the mantle with the other founding fathers uh you know George Washington at all. And it's a book that's filled with a lot of I didn't know that. Like I didn't know that he was in Valley Forge with Washington. Wow! Uh, so that's my book recommendation. And since you requested a music recommendation, I'll I'll offer uh, an indie band called San Fermín, and they're out of Brooklyn. And uh, one of the uh, the the founder of the band, uh, Ellis Ludwig Leone, is a classically trained musician uh, from Yale. And the lead singer is Alan Tate, and he's going to be my son in law. So there's a bit of <laughs> nepotism there. That's uh, okay. They are a very good band. So if you're looking for some indie band. You're letting a your good daughter
0: band. marry a, uh, a a worthless rock musician, a pool rock musician, huh? Uh, that's <laughs> exactly. good. Now. All right. Good for you. That's uh, fantastic. Open minded like that. <laughs> <laughs> My wife Av, swore when she'd broken up with the drummer she was dating before we got together that she would never date another long haired rock musician. And yet. <laughs> Here we are, 18 years later. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. All right, uh-huh. Sheila, you're up.
1: Um, <laughs> I think I'll go ahead and, and urge people to listen to some of Gong because that, that viola concerto after Catherine yeah. in the Rye is on YouTube. It's easily accessible, okay. and it even has, it explains, he's got subtitles going on at the bottom telling the part of the story that he's performing through music. I think it's really creative, it's a great piece of music, and it's a great example of the absorption of, of both cultures.
0: Oh, fantastic. Oh, no, I, I I was so blown away by that guy, so I'm I'm, I'm going to, as soon as we're done here I'm gonna check that out. Thanks, Sheila. Great recommendation. And Jin Dong.
3: Yes, okay. I always encourage people to listen to contemporary music yeah. by living composers. You know, and in this case I would recommend people to listen to composition by yeah. Zhou Long. Zhou Long is a composer. He is among the first class of the composition majors of, uh, after the Cultural Revolution entered into the Central of Music. Uh, you know, he's the same class as Tan Dun, uh, Ye Xiaogang, Chen Yi, they all uh, from the same class. And then he came to America, went to Colombia, got uh, doctors there, and then he started composing. What I like his music, is really his music is truly in the mm. Chinese inspiration. Uh, he really directly you know, bring a Chinese folk song or any tune to reorchestrate it. He never do that. But he, the sound is so Chinese. And, you know, the, the, the topic he, he picked, the the, the the piece, it's really unbelievable. And a couple of years ago, we actually, we did, we collaborated. And when I was at Stanford, we were thinking to create a musical work for uh, to commemorate the uh, the Chinese uh, railroad workers right. work in America to build the transcontinental railroad. So then, and uh, we search to see what we're we going to do. Then we decide to do a, a oratorio. So then, uh, you know, there are two people: as who is writing the lyrics and who is writing the music. So lyrics, we found Su Wei, who is a really great ri- uh, Chinese writer now, teach at Yale. And then music, I came up with Zhou Long. So now, um, we. Uh, so, they composed that, the piece. It's, it's called, uh, uh, what is it? Uh, the Chinese mm-hmm. called, called Tie Han Jin Ding. And, uh, the English name is called Man of Iron and the Golden Spike. Ah, right. So, basically, uh, basically, it's, uh, it's orator, one hour long music combined with orchestra, chorus, and solos. Because it's oratorio, it have some kind of uh, losing, uh, s- stories. Like, uh, there's, uh, uh, six solos. There's a mother and, t- and her two sons uh, who work in the railroad, and the mother back in uh, Guangzhou, Guangdong. You know, so uh, so there's a scenery, and then there's a uh, uh, American. Uh, what do you call, uh, manager, right? Mm-hmm. So, and, and his Four daughter, yeah. yeah, his daughter, uh, kind of fell in love. It's one of the Chinese, uh, railroad workers. So there's a little bit of sin and a story, but mostly we really um, revisit this a hundred years, 150 years ago, how Chinese people came all the way from China and worked really to build this great railroad and, and, and you know, from Nevada. To Sacramento, this part of the continental railroad pretty much uh, built by Chinese, and we and 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 uh, you know our uh, my my friend uh, Gordon Chang uh, at Stanford.
1: Gordon Chang at Stanford. <laughs> I knew you were going to bring
3: him in because it had the good Gordon Chang, exactly. but not the bad guy. Hey. Yeah, Gordon <laughs> Chang. <exactly. laughs> <laughs> you know, he wrote extensively about this uh, this uh, history, uh, yeah. you know, a phenomenon, and then we just say he we say, you know, we just keep doing this academic uh, research, and uh, I wish that more people would know it. That's the initial idea. We want to bring it um, on stage as an yeah. art form.
1: Send Kaiser the link. I think Kaiser would love this piece.
3: I am sure I would. Now, so
0: now is it on YouTube or is it somewhere that I can see it?
1: Pirate. It's
3: on YouTube, but someone, uh, I think someone secretly Uh, put on YouTube. But you can also get on from uh, the BART U.S. China Music Institute website. We we put. Oh no, that's where I'll. Yeah, so you can actually get that.
1: I'll send you the link. And it was going to be performed in Shenzhen, Hong Kong. All this it would have been fantastic, but then the pandemic came.
3: Yeah, we made the we made the world premiere. uh, uh, two uh, two years ago in a Carnegie Hall, then I brought the orchestra all the way from East Coast come to Stanford, perform at Stanford. And then we, actually we already scheduled to perform mm. in China, but because of the pandemic, we have to cancel it. But uh, <laughs> there's a plan in, in running yeah, so that piece, uh, I would really recommend that people to. Oh, that to.
0: sounds that sounds amazing, and yeah, I'm really glad. I knew that you were going to bring up Gordon Ch- Chang. Railroad Gordon <laughs> Stanford right? talking about you know, the Chinese American <laughs> yeah. experience, the railroads, yeah. the good Gordon Chang, right? Yeah. Oh, I, uh, so uh, uh, those of you who are not familiar with him, I interviewed him as part of my California series uh, last year. No, it was, uh, the end of 2019. So check that out. It's it's a really really fun interview. I am going to recommend a couple of long articles, uh, one from March 19th in the New York Review of Books called A Day in the Life of Abed Salama by Nathan Thrall, and another of roughly the same length uh, by the New Yorker writer Rafi Hachidurian called Surviving the Crackdown in Xinjiang, uh, which just came out this last week. If you've read them both, you will understand why I pair them, uh, both focusing on the experience of one individual. A Palestinian man named Abed Salama, whose young son is killed in a bus bus accident, and a Kazakh woman named Anar Sabit, who is detained and eventually sent to a re-education camp in her native Xinjiang in 2017. Both stories really kind of zoom out from these individuals to the macro picture of what's happening. Both feature, you know, very sympathetic characters whose names coincidentally both have the initials AS. It was really almost eerie how this happened, but... I read them right one after the other, and it, it really set my mind to thinking about the many ways in which Israel and China, in Xinjiang in particular, have parallels. It's, uh, I, I know I'm probably going to get in trouble for having said that, but it, it's really, it's really, uh, important, I think, to, to understand and to start thinking about those parallels. Anyway, thank you. I mean, I, I don't mean to end wow. on a depressing note here after such an <laughs> uplifting conversation. <laughs> But thank you once again to Jennifer, to Sheila, and to Jin Dong. It was, it's been such a pleasure speaking to you. Uh, and, and congrats on this just fantastic film. You, it was so great. Thank you so much. Thank
2: you, Kaiser. Thanks for having us
1: all on.
0: Oh, what a delight. Yeah. Great to see you, Sheila.
1: I miss seeing you in person, Kaiser, one of these days.
3: It won't be too long now. <laughs> okay. I've got my first shot, I've got my second yeah. one on the 17th. All right. <laughs> Yeah, I always want to visit your mother. You know, I hope. Uh, yeah, I, no,
0: she's she's living, you know, in um, Walnut Creek, she, right? Right, right. right in, so yeah, uh, so Creek. she's got both yeah, her shots. So you, to, can, yeah. you, know, yeah. as soon as you guys, are, yeah, go go see her. She'd be happy to okay. see her. Yeah, her godson. <laughs> <errant> godson. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. All right. So uh, just you. stick around for just one second. Don't don't close your because it, it's got to upload your stuff. I'm gonna go ahead. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldkorn with editing help by Jason Macronald Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News. And make sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.